And so during my warm down, a gentleman came out of the crowd and he reached out to shake my hand. And he said, hello, my name is Bill Bowerman. Would you get the girls off the, the team to test Nike shoes? And so I shook his hand and I said, nice to meet you, Mr. Bowerman, but we're not girls, we're women. <laughs> He thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard, and we became very fast friends. Hey, congratulations on the, this podcast, guys. Oh, thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, it's one of those things where, honestly, um, we'll talk to somebody, they'll mention somebody's name, and we'll reach out, and then they'll kind of pass on another name, and so... Uh, your name has come up multiple times in conversations. Um, <laughs> Hopefully good. Oh, it's all good oh, no, stuff. All good, but, yeah. um, thank you for yeah. coming on with us. Of course. Of course. My pleasure. My privilege. If you're up for it, we'd love to just kind of start with, you know, going to college. Why was Oregon the school for you? And, you know, maybe we can kind of start there and, and uh, you can take us on your journey. Well, my name is Ellen Schmidt-Devlin, and I'm an Oregonian fifth generation. So I grew up in Albany, Oregon, and uh, back in the 70s when I was growing up, that small town was about 20,000 people. And uh, um, I ran on a track team with uh, um, the Hayes. So Del Hayes is one of the original people that worked at Nike. So my senior year, he noticed that I was wearing an old blue and white pair of Adidas shoes. And I had been training um, with the, the boys on the team in my high school track team. And he just thought I needed, you know, I was training with his son because I was training with the, with the guys. Uh, he thought I needed a new, a new pair of shoes. So he invited me over to their house and I came over. I didn't know why I was going over. And uh, I sat down and he asked me if I wanted something to drink. I said, sure. You know, John was who I ran with, John Hayes. He was there, we're visiting. And uh, Dale tells me, I have something for you. And I said, what's that? And he went back and he got an origin white box and he handed it to me. He said, you have a much better chance of winning at state meet if you have a decent pair of shoes. And so I opened up that orange and white box and I looked inside and I saw the most beautiful kangaroo, kangaroo leather spikes. They were, they were green and gold. And so, you know, although I had not made the decision to go to the University of Oregon yet, and Albany is only 10 miles from Oregon State, and back in the 70s, the best 800-meter runner in the United States went to Oregon State, and the best 800-meter coach was at Oregon State, so I thought I would go to Oregon State. When I saw those shoes, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be a tough decision. <laughs> and then, obviously, I won the half mile at the state meet in Hayward Field, and in the 70s, you didn't pick your university. You were starting to get letters. So I got letters from UCLA. I got a letter from Oregon, Oregon State. So I visited each of the colleges. And when I went back and when I went down to the University of Oregon, Tom Heinen had, was coaching down there. He had coached only one year. And he took me through the facilities in Eugene. And he said, we are trying to build on the women's side what we have on the men's side. Can you help us? And I thought, doggone it, that just, that hit my competitive nature. And I said, absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to do that. 
And so I talked to some people that I'd been running with. Uh, Katie Mountain, who ran at uh, St. Mary's, convinced her to come down to Oregon. And we started talking to a lot of the other local runners. And, you know, I mean, we kind of built a legacy down there during my four years. But something very interesting happened to me after my very first cross-country meet. So if you run cross-country, you, you know, you warm up, then you run the race, and then you warm down. And so during my warm down, a gentleman came out of the crowd and he reached out to shake my hand. And he said, hello, my name is Bill Bowerman. Would you get the girls off the, the team to test Nike shoes? And so I shook his hand and I said, nice to meet you, Mr. Bowerman, but we're not girls, we're women. <laughs> he thought that was the funniest thing he had ever heard. And we became very fast friends. So he had a small innovation lab down in Eugene and I was, you know, I, I, my aspirations were to the moon and probably my talent was a little less than that. Um, but, and I was, I was oftentimes injured. So I'd go down to his innovation lab and fix my shoes. And then he had a lot of different crazy ideas for innovating. And that's probably a whole nother podcast for us to <laughs> talk about his innovations and what we worked on while I was down there. Um, and then finished up, was finishing up my senior year at the University of Oregon. And Bill asked me if I wanted to take a break from the university and train for the 1980 Olympics. And I said, I described that as uh, asking a baby if they, uh, or a child if they only want to eat candy. You know, of course I want to train for the Olympics under an Olympic coach. Yes, I would like to do that, Bill. And so Robin Baker and, our, and myself took a break from the university and trained for the 1980 Olympics. We made that decision at the end of 79. And those Olympics... That decision wasn't made until February of 1980. And so if you look at uh, uh, Bill Byron and, and the men of Oregon, he only coached four women. And I was one of those four women that he coached. So we, I went on to run the Olympic trials. There was no Olympics. And if you look at the charts, you'll see me in the semifinals. You won't see me in the finals. So I didn't make the team. Um, and I went back to the university, finished my education, volunteered, with my church up in Seattle for a year. And then I said, I really don't know what to do with my life. You know, does anybody have any ideas? And my very good friend, Katie Mountain said, I hear Nike's hiring, you know? And so I got a piece of paper out, got my typewriter out and said, dear Mr. Bowerman. And again, maybe I wasn't paying attention, you know, because I'm like, how are you? How is Barbara? You know, I hear Nike is hiring. Can I use your name as a reference? You know, so clearly I didn't understand he was a co-founder of the company, you know, so he took that sheet of paper, he turned it over and Bill only wrote in carpenter pencil, you know, so I'm pretty sure this is what it said. Come work for me, Bill. And he, he folded it up, he put it in the same envelope, crossed out his name, wrote my name in, luckily put a new stamp on it and sent it back to me. So when I got the letter, I'm like, doggone it, I... I can't believe I returned to Stender. I know this is Bill's address. And then I realized what he did. I'm like, doggone you. you know? So when people ask me, was Bill into sustainability? I said, no, I think Bill was just cheap. You know? And so anyway, that started me on my career at Nike. And so um, I worked in that small innovation lab um, uh, for several years. And then I worked in Exeter, New Hampshire. Uh, from there, I came back to Beaverton, Oregon, and then I had an international career. I worked in product merchandising in Hong Kong. I was a footwear uh, business director in Japan, came back to the United States because Nike was beginning to look at sports and sportswear kind of separate. 
And while had, they had brought those together, it was confusing both sides. It was con confusing the sports side. It was con confusing the sport wear side. So they were they were separating those two. So I came back and I helped on the sports wear side. Uh, and then I went offshore again. I was a general manager of Nike's office in Bangkok, Thailand. Uh, and then I... <laughs> Uh, we did one more assignment for Nike in Busan, Korea, responsible for their office there and their office in Qingdao, China. And so I retired Nike in 2009, which seems like 100 years ago, right? <laughs> and when I retired Nike, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be involved with someplace that was involved with developing people, you know, and, and I wanted to be someplace that was innovative and, you know, just they had richness, youth, you know. So I actually went to both Portland State and the University of Oregon. And I brought both of them this crazy idea. And uh, the, how I brought it to them, as I said, you know, we told the same joke every single day at Nike. And that joke was, well, you can't go to school for this. <laughs> because while there were programs focused on design, and if you were a designer, you could go to school and learn how to design. And while there were programs focused on engineering, you could go to school and become an engineer. There were no programs that were focused on the business side of creation. So I actually took that idea to both Oregon, the University of Oregon and Portland State, and they both said yes. Um, but Portland State wanted to combine it into kind of a concept of consumer products. And I tried to explain to them that, unfortunately, or fortunately, sports and outdoor products don't see themselves as consumer products. You know, it's much bigger than that. And the University of Oregon already had a program in Eugene called the Warsaw Sports Marketing Program. You know, so they had this very successful 20-plus year program that had been educating people that were working at companies like ESPN, you know, you had people at Nike, Adidas, you know, kind of more on the service side and the marketing side and less on the product creation side. And so the University of Oregon invited me to come down to Eugene and teach a class on the sports product. And so I put together curriculum and came down and taught a class. And when a, a three credit graduate level class, you see the, the students 30 hours, 10 weeks, three hours a week. You know, and while I believed my curriculum and teaching was pretty good, you know, at the end of my time teaching these students, they were all coming up to me saying, okay, now how do I get my job on a product creation team at Nike or Adidas or Under Armour? And, you know, my answer was, well, I don't think you do. You know, I don't think 30 hours of learning about product is enough, you know? And so the Dean of the business school at that point invited me in to meet with his, uh, um, I guess they're called vice deans or all, all the different people on his team. And they said, we're interested in doing a program more focused on the business side of creation. What should we do? You know, and it was like that Moses moment, you know, where you're looking around and you're like, are you, are you talking to me? <laughs> you know, and it was like, yeah, he appears to be talking to me, you know? And so while I threw out a couple ideas, you know, I, I bottom line said, why don't we ask them? Why don't we ask the industry what they want from us? You know, and I, at that point, I did not realize that's not how universities develop programs. Universities look internal. They look at what they can do, and then they offer that to the marketplace. So we were doing the exact opposite of that. We were going out and asking, what do you want from the University of Oregon in the area of innovation, sustainability, global talent development? What can we do for you? 
and we had over 150 interviews. The first uh, 50 of them <laughs> were face-to-face, -face. <laughs> so that took a long time. And the next 100 were in focus groups where I would go into a company and invite 10 people that were Warsaw graduates or, you know, had an interest, were on the business side of creation that had a point of view, you know, so we just listened to what the industry was telling us. And at that point, you know, it takes time to do that kind of research. And this industry moves so quickly that my concern is that this industry is going to look at what we're doing and then they're going to say, well, okay, we've moved beyond that. So I said, we have to begin to communicate to the industry. So we built a website and that website is, you know, kind of, it started kind of three, three parts of it. The first is, you know, what, you know, asking them that questions. What do you want from innovation? What do you want from, from, um, in, you know, from sustainability, from talent development? What do you want from us? You know, that kind of building what our questions were. The second was, what did you tell us? You know, and then our third part is, what are we going to do about it? You know, and so that kept the industry engaged. The other thing that we did is we started industry workshops. You know, so in these interviews, we were hearing everybody said, we need to all know more about smart materials, you know, or, you know, people from Intel saying, hey, we're interested in apparel. Can you teach us apparel? Or people saying, can you teach us more about footwear? You know, so we started a series of industry uh, workshops where we taught everything from merchandising to footwear making to apparel making you know, to merchandising, to sustainability, and that continued to engage the industry. We also started an industry advisory board where we invited 50 people to come in quarterly and tell us what's going on in the industry. This is what we're planning on doing. Does it still sound right? Because when you try to do a program at a university, all of us from the outside look at universities saying, they're so quick, they're so innovative, they're so young. But universities are actually very conservative. You know, I mean, you take an organization that's over 100 years old, and I can guarantee you it's going to be conservative. You know, so we came to the university with this idea, and it took us almost two years to convince the, the business college to approve this program. Then we had to take it to the university and get approval from the university. That took almost another year. Then we had to have the rest of the universities in the state of Oregon say that we could do this program in Portland. That took another year. So we were actually, our final meeting that gave us permission to do this program was in Salem, Oregon, in front of the Higher Education Coordinating Committee. They call it HEC. And they voted to say, yes, the University of Oregon has permission to do a Master's of Science in Sports Product Management in Portland, Oregon. And the votes were coming. And back it was back in the day before Zoom, you know, this is 2015, not that many years ago, I guess. And... You know, basically, it was like, nay, yay, nay. And then the recording went off. So my team is listening to this and they cannot hear what the vote is. And so I'm like, I'm either going to come out of this meeting and I'm going to jump on a plane and go on vacation in California, or I'm going to go down <laughs> to the building in Portland, Oregon, the White Stag, and start building this program. It was February 2015. We brought in our first class in September 2015. And, and we have now graduated our fifth class. We have over 300 graduates of this program. Over 90% of our graduates are in the industry. They're in jobs like product line management, product development, product operations, costing, sales, uh, manufacturing operations, you know, kind of all the, the support parts of, um, of the creation process. We also have designers that go through this program. And so the designers with an undergraduate in design will come through this program 
and either decide to start their own company. We've had five companies start from um, this program, or they'll decide to be a designer or a, a concept creator in this industry. So that is a very long-winded <laughs> answer to your question. <laughs> no, I, I, I specifically love just the journey of what you just stated and specifically how you said, oh, we went to go ask the students what they wanted in regards to the program. It's like, literally, you're asking the consumer for the information that's needed. Um, if we can go back to Mr. Bowerman real quick, like as a, as a coach and as an innovator, what was that like as an athlete for him, you know, leading the way in the charge of like being a coach for your skills of an athlete, but also was he the type of guy who said, you know, just gather that information from you guys in regards to like his innovative ideas of curating like the footwear piece of everything? Yeah, so I'll tell you a story. So um, each week I would go down to the innovation lab that he had in Eugene, Oregon, and it was in the basement of the Eugene Medical Building. And so it was completely unimpressive. You know, you would walk down these stairs, I mean, and you'd go in, and it was like this really dark area. And, you know, I mean, you had, you had makers down there, you know, and each week Bill would have a pair of shoes for me to try that week. And he would have done something to those shoes to in whatever he was innovating in that week. So we had a series of shoes because I could always tell where his mind was because the shoes would be like, but I knew the time where his ideas were around. How do we make shoes more durable? You know, because almost every week I'd come down saying, you know, my shoes are wearing out. I don't have enough money to repair my, to replace my shoes as quickly as I need to. You know, I mean, what can we do to make shoes last longer? You know, and so Bill handed me a pair of shoes and he said, I put something into um, the outsole rubber uh, that I think will make these shoes more durable. And so I looked on the outsole and I could kind of see, I said, are those acorn shells? He's like, yeah, yeah, I think that's going to work. <laughs> you know, so I went home and I tried those shoes. Well, after the first run, there were no acorn shells left in that outsole, you know, so I took it back to Bill. And, and with Bill, it was like, if a failure was a success. He's like, okay, great, good, good, good. You know, because he knew that wasn't going to work, right? You know, so the shoes I picked up that week, he said, okay, I have figured out a material that's much more durable. I've put that into the outsole material and I want you to run in these shoes. And so I look and I can't really see what he's put in there. So I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. And so I put on the shoes and I go for a run. And, you know, oftentimes when a runner is running, they, their one foot will come by the other leg or the other calf. And as my, my um, foot came by my other calf, it cut my calf. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what has he put into this outsole? You know, and so I looked and he had put metal shavings into the rubber. And then he had formed the rubber into a waffle and put it onto the outsole. You know, and so I'm like. Bill, I'm thinking to myself, Bill, this is a terrible idea. You know, so I wore the shoes the rest of the week and my, my, my calves were just cut up big time. You know, so I go back down into the unimpressive basement, you know, the next week and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to show it to him. I'm going to show him how smart I am. You know, those shoes just didn't work. So I get down to the lab and Bill comes down. He goes, what would you think about the shoes? I said, Bill, take a look at my calves. Because they're all cut up. I said, this is a terrible idea. He looks at my calves. He looks at me. He goes, Alan, 
I thought you'd be smart enough to quit wearing them the first time they cut you, you know? So I think with Bill, you know, that, I mean, that really showed that he, he, the, the voice of the consumer, the voice of the athlete was the most important voice, you know, and it took me some time. It took me a lot of cuts on my calf, if you will, you know, to really honor my own voice, you know, because he, you know, in my mind, he was this Olympic coach, you know, he knew best, you know, and what he was, and what I don't think he was intentionally trying to cut my calf so I would learn that lesson. But as you can imagine, I never forgot that. You know, I always remember that the voice of the athlete is what matters the most. And if you listen and really listen to the voice of the athlete and give them permission, you know, they will tell you exactly how to make products that will work so well for them that they will win medals. You know, so I never won any medals, but I certainly learned that lesson about the voice of the consumer. Wow. Um I mean, your stories with Bill are have to be incredibly unique, given your experience and the, with the people that you eventually started working with once you came into Nike to have that background. Because um, I personally didn't really have any idea that there was an innovation lab out of Eugene um, that then was kind of imported into Exeter. Um, I obviously knew about the history of Exeter and the folks like, you know, Bruce Kilgore and obviously Mark Parker. Can you talk a little bit about the journey to Exeter and about, you know, the beginning of that time at Exeter with those people that you were around at, in, at that point in the company's history? Yeah. So um, there were down in the innovation lab when I was an athlete, um, the innovation lab had kind of two people working in it. Um, Fred O'Neill was the lab manager and Trip Allen was kind of the innovator. You know, like if you needed to have something done on a pair of shoes, you would come down and say, hey, Trip, can you do this for my shoes? And oftentimes the shoes that we would be testing were made by Trip. You know, so we were just sort of the athletes, if you will, we were the guinea pigs, you know, and then, you know, I mean, Trip was the one that made our shoes. And uh, then Trip kind of graduated on from Exeter to, or from Eugene to Exeter. So when I, after I received that note, you know, made with carpenter pencil, come work for me, that brought me then down uh, a full-time job. Well, I had been, I had a job with Nike when I was training for the Olympics. So my employee number is 1887, you know, and it keeps track of numbers at Nike, you know, that means something, right? When you go to yeah. the employee store, that means something, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I had my employee number. <laughs> From 1980, I actually didn't start full-time employment until after I graduated university, uh, and I started in 1982. And so, in the lab, um, we had Don Remlinger, uh, we had Mike, um, Mike Freeton, and myself. And the three of us worked for Fred O'Neill. And Fred was a very traditional kind of back in the day where the managers needed to be as rough on employees as possible. So we went to Bill and we just said, this is not the way we should be managed. And so uh, Mr. Bowerman brought in Bob Newland and Bob Newland had worked very closely with Bill Bowerman on all the Olympic trials and all the big meets that had been in Eugene. You know, so they were very much a partnership and Bob Newland helped us tremendously, you know, and. So the project that we would have, um, you know, we would sit with Bill, you know, the times he came down. And, you know, it, when I came down to work for him, I think one one reason he was interested in me coming is that I was a woman 
and he was interested in innovating in the area of gymnastics. The best gymnastics lab or gym in the United States at that point, as crazy as it sound, was in Eugene, Oregon. And Dick Mulvihill uh, had that uh, gym. And so uh, the young women that were training there, and they were very, they were probably 10 to 16 years old, they were getting injured. And, and Eugene's a very small town. So Dick Mulvihill and Bill Barman spent time together. And Dick was telling Bill, you know, these are the injuries we have. And Bill always believed any injury below the knee had, was related to the shoes, you know. And so, but obviously all of us that know gymnastics know that usually gymnasts don't wear shoes, right? You know, so Bill, I start this, you know, working with him. And he said, Ellen, uh, I want you to help us make gymnastic shoes. And I'm thinking to myself, I know nothing about gymnastics. And he said, that's okay. Dick Mulvihill knows everything about gymnastics. And what you're going to do is you're going to sit in his gym every single morning and you're going to watch gymnastics. You're going to talk to the girls. You're going to talk to Dick. And then in the afternoon, you're going to come over to the lab and you're going to, and Mike and Don and you and, you know, Fred, you're going to build a product for them. And then the next day, you're going to bring it back. They're going to work out. They might trade the product. You'll listen to them and we'll just rinse and repeat every single day until we've built a product that they're satisfied with. And so what Bill's concept was is that he believed, and I actually think this was a great concept. It didn't actually work out this way, but he believed that gymnastics would be to women's fitness what track and field had been to jogging. You know, so that, you know, a very high level sport that really nobody, you know, makes that much money in, but it's, it's very high profile. And then it spurs on this whole jogging movement, right? You know, and he could see what was happening with women's fitness. So he thought, okay, for sure, if you connect it to sports, that's the sport you would connect it to. You know, so part of his thinking was that if we can get it right with the gymnasts, then we can figure out, you know, how to make great fitness shoes and aerobic shoes. You know, um, you know, that could, because it was the 80s now, if you will, you know, so so we did that work. And, you know, I would come and I'd sit with Bill and say, you know, they're all wearing Asics shoes. And he'd be like, OK, well, what, what, what do Asics shoes have? And I said, well, they have this synthetic leather from Clarino. And he goes, well, where's Clarino? I'd say they're in Tokyo. They're in Japan. He's like, what are you doing here? Go over there. You know, I'd be like, well, we can't make the prototypes down here the way I would like to see us make them. Well, where could we make them? I was like, well, we do a lot of innovation in Korea. What are you doing here? Go to Korea, you know, and then I was working on other things that I'd say, you know, I mean, we, you know, uh, we've got Exeter, you know, they've got, we've got great pattern makers in Exeter. I think we could do much better prototypes than we can down here in Eugene, you know, and so he would send me back to Exeter. And we, we had something going on at that time called Nike University, and it was a lot of the people that were going to go offshore to the offices that Nike had. So I would attend classes at Nike University during the day. I would build the products, you know, in the afternoon, and then we bring them back to Eugene and try them out. You know, so, so the connection between Eugene and Exeter were really kind of on the people side. When I got to um, Exeter, Trip Allen was there, you know, and so... You know, I used to babysit for his kids, you know, and then, um, I mean, I think that, that, that Bill was very, very pleased that I was there. And it's so funny because I didn't find this out until years ago because um, Tom Clark was in charge of Exeter at that point. 
And I was kind of like, well, Bill probably won't want me to go back there and want me to stay in Eugene and continue to work with him. But when I was back in Exeter, um, Bruce Kilgore offered me a job. And so he, and it was back in the day when we didn't have categories, we had, we had bigger categories. So he offered me a job to do product development for women's court shoes. Okay, so we didn't have tennis and basketball and aerobics, we had court shoes. So he offered me a job in that, and I wasn't sure what to say. And so apparently Tom Clark told me years later that Bill Barman called him and said, yeah, yeah, Ellen's back there. Yeah, you're going to hire her. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint Bill, and he's already telling Exeter, New Hampshire to hire me, you know. So, so anyway, uh, we were back in Exeter. And Exeter, I got back there in 1983, the end of 83, and we closed Exeter and brought it back to Oregon in 85. You know, so while Don Remlinger had, had gone up to Beaverton and, you know, if we would have stayed as Exeter back in the East Coast, you may have come that direction. He stayed in Beaverton and then Mike Freighton stayed down in Eugene and continued to innovate with uh, Bowerman kind of through the years. And if you're looking for somebody that I think is Bill Bowerman today, that is Mike Freighton. So if anybody asks me, what's Bill like? I would say, have you met Mike Freighton? <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, the name you popped up was Don. I, I mean, I know Don. He's an amazing dude. And um, yeah. and if you haven't talked to Don yet, JP, you guys need to. He's yeah, I, he's definitely on our list. I know he's been <laughs> going everywhere, I feel like, in just retirement. So I haven't spoken to him recently. So, yes. Um, you know, one of the topics we discuss about is about leadership. And it sounded like you had some amazing leadership. And even in like your first boss, it was kind of like the rough on the employees and you went straight to Bill and Bill took care of it. Um, what was that like through your career um, having, you know, what was leadership in your interpretation? How, how did that look like during your Nike career? Yeah, I had, I was very fortunate. I had great managers at Nike. I always had great managers at Nike and I never I, and, and I know this is going to sound odd to people, you know, but I mean, you were a worker first and then, you know, like people like, well, you don't play your gender. And I'm like, why would I, you know, I mean, if gender was important, then I'm, let, me, let me try to play it to my advantage. I never, I never felt like it was a disadvantage. It might've been, it was never apparent to me. Um, I always, I just, I tried to work as hard as I could. And by working as hard as I could, the advantages would come my way. You know, so Bruce Kilgore had a chance to get to know me, Tom Clark, just because, I mean, we're all kids, you know, we play basketball together, we run together, you know, I mean, Bruce had a young family, I babysit for him, you know, and I always felt like that from working for, for, you know, Bruce in Exeter, Bruce followed my career and helped me throughout my career. You know, I can, I'll never forget that years later, I wasn't reporting to Bruce. We were at a meeting together and apparently I was, I made an offhanded comment about somebody getting an opportunity that I had not gotten. And he turned and looked at me and he said, Ellen, do you think you deserve things? Why would you think you deserve things? You know, and it was just that comment that I thought really showed me how much he cared about me, you know, because it was like he helped reset and reframe the way that I thought about things. You know, why would you think you deserve something? You get things. I'm just the same as being an athlete. You get things because you worked hard. You know, you get things because you're ready for them. You know, you get things because you try for them. 
you know, you don't deserve anything, you know? So Bruce Kilger, Tom Clark, and they became, after they were uh, not my managers anymore, they weren't the leaders in charge of the, the departments I was in, they became great mentors, you know, and they were, always had a high level of authenticity and honesty. And I think that's what made for a great leader at Nike is, and the honesty piece was that they weren't afraid to tell you that you were wrong or that you had done something wrong or that you could have done it better. And they would say it in such a way that, that because they knew you pretty well, I mean, I knew these guys really, really well. They'd tell me in such a way that it would reshape and re, reform me as a future leader, mm. you know? And so I had Deb Hiller in for years. Deb uh, was at the company for like 20 years. She led uh, many of the initiatives at Nike from uh, Nike Women's to Side One. You know, Deb was incredible. Uh, Ron Nelson was one of my, uh, you know, he was one of the leaders that we looked up to, but we also sat at the table with. You know, with Ron, what I learned, I learned so much. I mean, Ron still to today calls me on my birthday. Yeah. You know, I mean, I haven't been at Nike for how many years? He had retired 10 years before me. He calls me every year on my birthday, you know? And what he taught me is he would walk into a room and there'd be people there that knew him and people there that didn't know him. And he would just reach over and he goes, hi, I'm Ron. And then he would immediately be able to figure out the person. Because if, it was, if the person didn't think he was important, they would ignore him, not realizing who he was, you know? Ron Nelson, what if, Phil Knight's original guys, right? You know, but back in the day, you you get new people at Nike. They didn't know who the other people were. You know, so he he never used who he was, you know, to try to influence a group. And he taught me so much about how to communicate at the company. Um, he explained to me once. He said some of the early days at Nike when they were sitting at the table with their Japanese distributors, and important questions were being asked, important decisions were being made. He said, we never left the table if we needed something more. And if, if it had not been said, and I realized that I was the one that needed to say it, then I said it, mm. you know, so which really showed me, well, I think oftentimes people think about Nike, particularly from the outside, that it's a bunch of loud mouth people that always have the right idea. <laughs> you know, and, it's, and I think Ron showed me that it's not about that at all. It's about making sure the right things are happening. And if you're the person that needs to make the right things happen, then it's your responsibility to make them happen. I mean, when I was at Nike, we used to say, okay, we did a hundred things today. I mean, we just hope we did 51% of them right, you know? And then the next day we come in and we have no idea, you know, which 50 were right, you know? And so, you know, it was a complete learning process. I mean, other leaders that I had, Claire Hamill, an incredible leader at Nike, you know, Mark Parker, uh, Sandy Bodecker, yes. uh, Don Remlinger. Don was my manager when I was in Hong Kong. Uh, Chris Lindgren. I mean, there's there's just so many incredible people that we work with at Nike, and I'm I'm honored that many of them, you know, we still have a chance to touch base every now and again. <laughs> Juliet Moran. You know, I could go on and on, guys. Remember, I was there for 27 years. So. <laughs> no, you had an amazing. Um many years i was like like i said jesse and i were talking earlier and i was just looking at your your history and i was just like amazed like you just have such a great repertoire of, of the years and experiences at nike and what you're you're cur curating now with with the program at the uvo so um yeah that's awesome 
So, Ellen, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously people um, spend a, a really lengthy career at Nike. Um, there's opportunities. They, I think that they really reward people who have been with the company for a long time. So, you know, what was, what was a factor in your decision-making at the time to say, hey, 27 years, I think I need a different challenge? What, what, how did that come about? It's a great question. And I think it's one that every person will face when they, if they, you know, make a decision to stay at the same company for their career. When I look back and I think I was there 27 years, I'm like, you're kidding. Really? It added up to that, huh? You know, because it came in one and three years segments, right? You know, so um, I started repeating jobs, you know, so I had been the general manager of Nike's liaison office in Thailand. And then uh, I was now the general manager of Nike's Korea liaison office in Xinjiang, China. And I just think there's different ways that the company kind of signals that you're probably not going up anymore. Um, and I always felt like it, for a career, I, would, I wanted to be Michael Jordan. I wanted to go out on the top of my game. I didn't want to stick around, you know, the, you know, and, and have to be on that. And, and I'm not saying anything bad about anybody that does. I just felt like, you know, the company had really, you know, I, I went to school at Nike, you know, for 27 years, I was learning, I was growing, you know, I, and I got to the point where it's like, I don't think I'm learning and growing anymore. And at some point at Nike, if you're not learning and growing, then you're blocking somebody else from having that opportunity, you know? And so I was looking for a way of kind of stepping out. When I took the role in Pusan, Korea, I had told Nike, you know, I probably have two more rotations in me, you know, because Nike is, I mean, you'll, you'll see people step away from Nike in their forties and their fifties because I mean, it is a tough career, you know, I mean, it is, it's tough on your family. It's tough on you physically. You know, I mean, people would always, they come to campus and they were like, oh my gosh, look at your fitness center. Oh, this is so beautiful. Oh, look at everything you have here. And I'd be like, oh, you see that bag over there with my clothes in it? It's like, yeah, it's been here now for a year because every day I think I'm going to get out and get a workout in. You know? Every day I have not gotten a workout in. You know, I mean, again, when you're younger in the company, you have time for working out. But as you move up, you know, I mean, it's a very dynamic company. You know, and when you're working, I worked a lot of my career, you know, in Oregon with offshore offices, you know, either in Latin America, uh, in Central America and Canada or in Asia, you know, so you're sort of always on, you know, and so it was, it was Nike was 24 seven before you could be 24 seven, you know, and so the intensity of that just really wears on a person, you know, so I could tell it was wearing on me. You know, and, you know, we were in Asia, our kids were in college in the United States. And you asked about leadership, JP, earlier, and I had really enjoyed the leadership acumen I had learned in all the offices in Asia. And I knew my next step would be back to the world headquarters. And I just said, I'm just not ready to do that. I, I don't want to do that. And we were downsizing in 2008. And so I was given the choice, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And I kind of apologized and I said, I'm, I'm going to go, you know? And so well, after I left, I had, I did six months of a thank you tour to thank everybody that helped me. And probably my thank yous, Bill had already passed away. So I had a chance to go to Fossil, Oregon and thank Barbara Bowerman. And when I got to, you know, they, they had both been in like an assisted living facility. And so I went to go visit Barbara there. She didn't want to see me there. She wanted to see me at the corner 
uh, cafe. So we had lunch and then she wanted to walk me over to a new project she was working on, you know, with all the rocks and fossils. And she took me back over there and we get end, towards the end of our time. And she said, Ellen, you and I have known each other for so many years and many Nike people come over and visit me. Everybody brings me different things. And this is going to sound crazy, but I don't have a pair of shoes that fits. Could you bring me a pair of shoes? And so I said, Barbara, will you give me the privilege of tracing your foot? Because obviously Bill had done that for me when I was an athlete. So I took a piece of paper. I had Barbara stand on it and I traced her foot. And I tell you that piece of paper was wet with my tears. And even today, when I tell you this, it was so touching to be able to do something for Barbara. And I, at that point, I had already retired from Nike. So Eric Sprunk, another excellent leader at Nike. Um, I, when I got back from seeing Barbara, I sent uh, Eric a note saying, Harry, Eric, just visited Barbara Bowerman. Have a quick request. Can I come visit you? And so I came to his office and I'm like, okay, Eric, I know you guys have already given me a lot of things. Barbara needs a pair of shoes. <laughs> He looks at me and he said, Ellen, never worry about those things. <laughs> and so, so that was the one thank you that meant so much wow. for me. The other thank you was I had a chance to thank Phil Knight. Mm -hmm. And so Phil had a group of writers that he brought together. And this is when Phil was writing his book. And so I had a chance to meet one of the writers that, that taught him at Stanford, Stephen Elliott. So whenever Stephen came to town, he would let me know about the dinner that they're having with Phil. So it would be a bunch of writers, Phil and me, you know, and so we're all going out to dinner. I get there early because I always get places early and it's just Phil and me. And I say, hey, Phil, I'm so glad we get this 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 time. I said, um, I wanted to thank you for my 27 years at Nike. And he said, oh, man, yeah, I saw your name on the list. Why did you want to leave? And I said, OK, I'm going to quote Phil to Phil. And I said, if I don't, and he said this when he left from the, I think he was the, from the CEO to the board of directors, whenever he was starting to move away from the company, he said, if I don't leave this, I don't know what else is out there for me. And so this is how smart Phil Knight is. Two years later, I'm sitting in his office pitching a film about women's track and field that we produced and delivered in 2012 called We Grew Wings. And when I'm pitching the film, as I'm leaving his office, he said, now you know. And so I don't think that what was intended for me was that film, but that film led me into being able to do this project because the number one fan of our film on women's track and field was the dean of the business school. And so when he came to our, our premiere during the Olympic track and field trials in 2012, he, he was confident, I guess, because he could see what we could produce. And then he's the one that later on asked me, what should we do for this industry? And gave us the latitude and a sign probably to me. So I'm a co-founder. The other founder is Dr. Roger Best. And he's the smartest man I have ever met in my life. And so he knew the academic side. I knew the industry side. We partnered and we put this program together. So yeah, I think everything kind of led into the next thing. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I would ask you our, our, our questions of like, you know, giving advice to kids who would like to come into Nike, but 
I think I'm going to try to change it up with the program, with the U of O program. What has been kind of the, the common theme or statement where these, these university kids um, are, are, are taking your program and after the program, like how are they learning um, or, or are they learning into the steps of trying to get into uh, the Nikes or Adidas or Under Armors and are they still asking you those questions as well, I guess, in the sense of like, how do I get there after this program? Yeah. So, I mean, we have a very rigorous program uh, at, you know, in, in a department that places our um, students in internships in this industry. And then that same department's the one that helps them with the job placement side. So that's why we're 90% plus in this industry. But I do think there are some tips that if we have high school um, or undergraduates listening to this or people that have high school students and undergraduates, um, and when I, I'm going to give you some tips and I can guarantee you that people are going to say, nah, she's not right. And I can guarantee you I'm right about this. Okay. The number one tip, number one, work retail, work retail, retail teaches you product and consumer work retail. And I tell students that I, and it's like, my God, Ellen, I went to college, so I didn't have to work retail. It's like, I'm not telling you you're going to work retail your whole career, but I'm telling you now work retail, you know, and, and, you know, if you walk through a retail door, in most cases, you can get a, get a job, right? You know, so why not get one? and have that experience. And I can guarantee you every single one of these companies will respect it. And you would say, Ellen, what about e-commerce? Okay, you got an IT background, work e-commerce. But the face-to-face -face is still critically important in this industry. So work retail. The, the second thing I'll tell you, and that's how our program is made or how it's formatted, is that we teach the student's head through their hands and their heart. And that's what makes what we do so sticky is because we have so many different types of students that can contribute in this industry. You know, I mean, we don't have to only have students that have graduated from Harvard or have a PhD. You know, there are so many people that if we help them understand is that we're going to teach your head through your hands and your heart. We allow the makers to become a part of this process. And I think we missed out on the makers in our junior highs and our high schools because we started taking away, you know, all the maker spaces in those schools. And we made new schools with some maker spaces, but then we specialized people too quickly, you know. And I think that level of creativity, if we can allow students to be creative, if we can allow people to be creative, they're going to be able to see themselves in this industry. You know, so for example, okay, now who's going to know me better than my father, right? I spent 27 years at Nike and I spent all these years telling him what I did at Nike. But every single time he would introduce me, he would say, this is my daughter, Ellen. She's a designer at Nike. <laughs> I would say, no, dad, that's not what I do. You know, but still this industry, all you see on the creation side are the designers, right? You know, for the very first time, I think we know Sandy Bodecker, and Sandy was a developer and a businessman, right? Mm -hmm. But the majority of the people that we know in this industry are designers. So if people want to be on the creation side, they think they have to be designers. You know, so part of what we're trying to do is open up people's 
understanding of the creation process. You know, the creation process involves everything from consumer insights, you know, to product line management, to development, to engineering, to design, you know, to operations, to go to market, to merchandising. All of those pieces are critically important for these companies to be successful. And, and the drivers now are sustainability, innovation, and global. Because I tell the students all the time, my almost 30 years in the industry, the U.S. drove they drove Western Europe and the U.S. drove this industry, drove fashion, drove this industry, drove the sports. The next 30 years, China and Asia will drive this industry. And it's important to understand that because those brands are coming. Those brands are buying Western brands, but they're also building. And that's it's going to have a huge influence on this industry and something that our students need to understand. You know, and as they understand, they can they can understand where they can contribute. You know, they might be contributing in Beijing or Berlin, you know, but it doesn't matter. You know, they're, they're all going to be opportunities. I also say they're all opportunities, but many of those roads go through Portland, Oregon. And that's why we are based in Portland, Oregon. When we made that decision, when we did those 150 interviews, they kept on telling me, Ellen, why are you in Portland? And I'm like, why are you in Portland? You know, because you're here, we're here, you know? And so, and since we made that decision, you know, Mizuno has an office in Portland, you know, on footwear, just put their North America headquarters in Portland. Lululemon is starting their innovation footwear in Portland. You know, and obviously we've seen Adidas add uh, a co-headquarters in Portland along with their North American headquarters. And obviously we've seen Nike grow through the roof during that time period. So, it's kind of the educational piece to help people get in this industry. The final thing is that oftentimes people don't look this, at this as an industry. They look at it as Nike, you know, and I think that that's too narrow, you know, because I have to tell you my experience at, at Nike and you hear my stories and you're like, that's what I want. You know, you're not going to get that at Nike now. Nike is a huge corporation. You know, you're going to go in there and you're, you're going to contribute in a very narrow area. They have to have, they're so they're so big that you're going to go in with a specialty. You're going to stay in that specialty. And it's going to take time to be able to do more than that. You know, and so if you go into a small company, you're going to have a much better chance of contributing kind of the way that I contribute in this, in this industry from merchandising to manufacturing, you know, and so it's important to see this industry, not just as a company, but as an industry. And I think that, that that's another you know, oftentimes, you know, it's like, well, Ellen, if I can't go to Nike, I don't want in this industry. I said, then don't go in this industry because you can't. Nike is a great company. It's a great company, you know, but it's not the only company. It's not the only way to contribute. If you go in this industry, go in because you care about the athlete. You care about the consumer. Don't go in because you care about what it looks like, you know, you know, with you on, with your Nike products on. You know, so. I love yeah. that. Um, Ellen, so like <clears throat> the program has been around, you had talked about the classes that have come through, which is just remarkable. The amount of, of, um, students that have been a part of this program. Um, you obviously were the linchpin you partnered, you said with Roger, correct? Um, oh, obvious. Yeah. yeah. So there's a, a whole host of people that you have brought on board. Some of them are, are former Nike people. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about your role now and how it's evolved in, in terms of your involvement in the program and, and, and how that's changed and what's kind of sort of next on the horizon for you in terms of your career? <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, we're working on my next right now. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you what I can tell you. So right now I'm the executive director for the Lundquist College of Business Portland programs. And so we have um, the executive MBA program in Portland, and then we have the Masters of Science in Sports Product Management face-to-face program, and then we also have the online program. And so those are the three programs we have based in Portland. So I oversee the directors um, and the programs in Portland. So kind of what's next for me? And I love your question because, again, you're like, okay, if she left Nike in 2009, she's probably already thinking about what she wants to do next. (laughs) So um, we have built a great program. We have built incredible leaders. You know, so Shelly Gourlay, who's leading SBM for us now, Rachel Todd, who's leading our executive program, Jenny Leander, who's, who's in charge of all of our students up there, great leaders, you know, so... Uh, we have started, or the provost at the university has started an initiative called Sports and Wellness. And so I've sort of put my hand up to say, hey, if we're going to connect the dots of the sports and wellness at the University of Oregon, let me help. You know, and so without announcing anything, and again, they could tell me no, I've kind of raised my hand saying that's how I'd like to contribute longer term. I will always keep involved with SBM and as a leader, as an advisor we have so much more to do. You know, I mean, we're still building our online program. Um, We are still, we were uh, very close to adding a cohort in China, in Shanghai before everything happened, you know, and an incredible interest from a partner university in Shanghai. You know, um, we also have, we have partners in Asia that over the last year and a half, we haven't been able to, you know, we have these incredible relationships, but we've been separated. You know, and part of this industry is having the connectors. And I'm, and you can tell just from my career is that I'm one of those connectors. So I need to spend some time once we're out of lockdown, reconnecting our program with Asia. You know, we have a great university in, in Hong Kong we've worked with as well, in uh, Singapore, you know, and so those are, those are ways that we make our program stronger and more global. You know, so I'll continue to do that, that work in making sure that you know, my, my vision was that every single one of our domestic students go international for their internships. Every single one of our international students stay domestic because that's what the industry asks us for. You know, so to deliver on that it requires a tremendous amount of work every year. You know, so those are the kinds of things that you'll see me doing going forward. Wow, that's fantastic. Love it. Love that's so it. great. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I feel like we Ellen, need you to have. We did it an hour, guys. I know, but we need to. I feel like we're not. We we just like started. Scratch the surface. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you can invite me back. You know me. I'll come back. I love that. Oh, <laughs> I love man. you guys. Oh, we love that. <laughs> yes, um, we're super grateful. Thank you for your time. Um, we actually, uh, this is it's going to happen. We're going to have you come back. Um, and uh, you know, we're grateful, and you're doing amazing things, and I can't wait to see. Um, what else is going to happen and what you're going to do for the program and, and the future of students and being able to understand the trends of where it's going. So thank you. Thank you. And my honor to be with you today. Um, if we do invite me back, I'd love to hear what you're, what the people that are listening to you, what questions they would have. 
Oh yeah. yeah because I think, you know, they would have an idea of what I know and my background. And I, I just think that, that that kind of the consumer first approach. I think we're always more successful if we kind of know where they're coming from. So deal. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks again, Alan. We really privilege. appreciate your time. Thank you. At some point, I want to buy you guys a beer. So once we get out of lockdown, let me buy you a beer, okay? Absolutely. <laughs> All right, <Can't> deal. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. I don't know Thank how to get you. out of here now. So. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>